those that might not be familiar with um, liturgical worship or lectionaries, it gives the community a rhythm, a cycle of prayer and reading Bible. And today is a Good Shepherd Sunday. So fourth Sunday of Easter is always Good Shepherd. So this means that the readings that are appointed for tonight uh, will always revolve around Jesus, Jesus the Good Shepherd. So brothers and sisters, they might be familiar passages, but open your ears and your hearts to what the Holy Spirit has to say to you tonight. Good evening. Our uh, first reading for tonight is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is Psalm 23, and I'm sure every one of us can, by memory, recite it, but I choose the uh, translation that's not so familiar, so it will be like new for you. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your road, road and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know I told you to sit down, but this is an Anglican gym class, so you all have to stand up again. Sit down, stand up, praise the Lord. No. In all seriousness, it is a tradition that when in the presence of a king, you stand. And no, more, no less so than when we hear the king speak. So brothers and sisters, the good news according to John. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Now the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep, they follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and they are robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in, they'll go out, and they'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they'll have it to the full. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we begin with prayer. Father, we, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart may be acceptable in your sight and that these words and passages from Scripture, Lord, may bring life to your people. Pray that uh, you will give each one of us the grace to listen and to hear as you speak to us. Father, we do ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Those of you who are here this morning, I'm afraid that uh, for the sake of the broadcast, you might hear something that uh, could be repetitive, but perhaps it'll be more cohesive this evening. In um, many uh, churches uh, around the world, many uh, denominations, especially those who follow what's called a uh, revised common lectionary, the fourth Sunday in the season of Easter is Good Shepherd Sunday. And um, it has no doubt inspired mar uh, thousands of marvelous sermons, lots of great books and devotional material. But uh, I always find it a little bit challenging because when you want to talk about the Good Shepherd, it's sometimes as if you're talking about a stained glass window or you're talking about uh, the picture that we've seen over and over again in the children's Bible, or the picture that perhaps, picture of the good, uh, Jesus leading the sheep that uh, was hanging on our walls, you know, as children, or it's just a metaphor. In fact, the Jesus being the gate, um, and Jesus being the door. I, all of these can be quite abstract, abstract, and perhaps do not, excuse me, mean anything, or can be somehow very nebulous. But uh, none of that is true if we read these wor the words of Jesus from today's gospel in the context of John chapter 9. Because it's John 9 and 10 are basically one story. But the chapter divide makes us somehow think or tricks us uh, into assuming that somehow Jesus gone, has gone, on, gone off on some tangent. But Jesus being the model shepherd or the good shepherd, yes, Jesus being the one who lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus being the one who uh, provides and gives life and life to the full. All of that relates to or connects to our blind man. And uh, this poor guy uh, surely didn't have an easy life, but to compound it and to make, you might say, to make things worse, uh, he's a victim of very poor, actually even crude theology. And that theology says, and uh, some of us still uh, today retain, you might say, elements of such thinking, and that theology says is that misfortune happens to me because I've sinned or I have uh, gone bankrupt because I've done something wrong. I have I lost my spouse because there was some sin. And that's certainly true in some cases. Sin is dangerous and it does have serious consequences. But to say that all misfortune or all, or all um, sickness or pain 
or trials, tribulations, difficulties in life come because of some sin, the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, yes, certainly undermines, if not even pulls the rug out from all that. But still, nonetheless, the disciples say, disciples ask, who sinned? Yes, who's responsible? And of course, Jesus, in his response, I think it's, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And Jesus goes on to heal this man, and uh, this, uh, this guy, you might say that the, uh, the aftermath of the healing, or, the, or what happens after he washes in the pool of Siloam, becomes a drama bigger than the healing itself. And then somehow the, the miracle, um, you know, the miracle surely gets lost. So here's a man who was healed, who at one time before he was healed was a beggar, a victim of very crude, a very crude kind of theology, which uh, victimized him and isolated him. And finally, he's thrown out of his community. He gets tossed out of the synagogue. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who will provide. I'm the one who will protect. I'm the one who will give life and life to its full. Again, it's all in the context of this particular, it's all in the context of this story. And um, that protection, that provision, that life, yes, divine life, or abundant life, right? All of that, it wasn't only available to that blind man, but it's also available to us. The question is where and how do we find it? Yes? And I think the context, sorry, I think what might be very helpful for us is to go back to the passage that we read in Acts chapter two, right? Because it's in the context of a community it's in the context, yes, of uh, relationships and fellowships, yes, a Jesus-centered community that we actually find that abundant life. It no longer is something abstract or something that might seem to be pie in the sky, but it becomes something very practical and very tangible. And I think if our theology isn't practical, or it isn't tangible, if it's somehow um, only theological or philosophical, that uh, we need to be very careful, yes? So it's, I think it's good to begin by having a bigger picture. And the bigger picture in all of this is that when Jesus says he's the good shepherd and that he brings eyesight to this man who's blind, it's not merely a local story, but it's Jesus, right, connecting to or hinting at, yes, those shepherds found in the Bible. That Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 talks about God being the shepherd. In fact, Ezekiel 34 says the, the, the shepherds of Israel fail. They don't do their job. Notice, the Bible isn't, doesn't go very easy on clergy or necessarily, necessarily very easy on leaders. Those shepherds in ancient Israel didn't do their job. God will not only deal with them and judge them, but he himself will come down and be the shepherd. And he will gather the sheep. And he will nurture them. And he will protect them. 
And I have no doubt that when Jesus is talking about, uh, talking about or referring to himself as a good shepherd, that he is connecting um, this title with what's written in Ezekiel 34, which hints in a very nice Jewish way at the divinity of Jesus. And what does the Messiah, what does the Messiah do according to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, but bring, right, healing to the blind. So in this big, if we pull back for a moment, what we should see, right, is the big picture. And the big picture in all of this, right, that starts with creation, right, is God's intention to bring blessing and to enter into relationship with his people. And, of course, sin, death, and the devil come along to spoil that. But that doesn't frustrate God's ultimate plan. And from Abraham onwards, yes, God is committed to working through, yes, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, to not only bring redemption to Israel, but to bring redemption to the whole world. And I've quoted it before, but I think it's worth quoting again. There's a very famous Old Testament scholar uh, in the United Kingdom. His name was Chris Wright. His, I think he's still alive. I shouldn't, I shouldn't write his obituary, poor guy. And he summed up, he, he said, you can sum up the Old Testament like this. God so loved the world that he chose Israel. God so loved the nations of the world, Right? And God's promise of redemption, right, and a new creation, right, is part of the story of Israel. Yes? You know, again, it's worth quoting. Um, the famous uh, Croatian um, theologian, yeah, Jaroslav Pelikan, who once said, and allow me to, probably ruin the quote slightly, but you'll get the gist of it. He said that Jesus is the universal Lord and Savior. Yes, not in spite of his Jewishness, but because of his Jewishness. Yes, it's in God's promises, yes, to Israel. It's in God's working in and through Israel that universal redemption comes. And what is the gospel? We think of the gospel, oh, oh, the gospel is how I get saved. No. How we get saved is part of the gospel. But the basic gospel story, uh, the basic gospel story is God fulfilling his promises, right, to Israel. And not only to Israel, but to the, the entire human family. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, yes, that the gospel, Paul says, this is the gospel, you know, that I have received, yes, that uh, Jesus was crucified, and on the third day he rose again, according to what? According to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament, according to a book that is simply the story of Israel or God's encounter, right, with the people of Israel. And the same is true for Romans 1, where um, the, Paul starts off by saying, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be apostle, a set apart for the gospel of God, right? It's, it's the good news of God. It's not the gospel about me. The gospel is about God and what he does for us. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as, his, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through and who through the spirit of holiness was, the, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So when we think of uh, this, uh, this story, or we think of our own struggle, or we think of our own encounter with the living God, and 
maybe how we came to faith, and we focus on our walking with the Lord and our temptations, our failures, yes, the blessings that we've received, we think in a very local way. And I, in no way, I won't sound critical of that. People have needs, and our needs are legitimate. And we do have a God who wants to meet those needs. But at the same time, yes, what's so local and personal and individual shouldn't blind us to what is so big and what is so, you might say, universal or even so cosmic. That's a cool word, you know. With all that feedback we were having earlier, I was thinking of like Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. Okay, so most of you don't know who Jimi Hendrix was. <laughs> You're probably better off for it. Yeah. So, and what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you one practical. Let me let me just suggest one thing that it, it can be very, very practical. Because when we want to share our faith in today's world, and you, things, truth, is very relative. We might tell somebody, hey, this is what the Lord has done for me. This is how God has revealed himself to me. And if you're talking to pretty, a secular person, most likely, if they don't scoff, mock, they will, and they want to be polite, they'll say, well, you have your truth, and I have my truth. So, there. And what do you say to that? Here's what you say. No, you have your truth, and we have our truth. And our truth, yes, uh, our understanding, our revelation, our experience with the living God, and his son, Jesus the Messiah, it goes back 3,000 years. It's part of a very long story. Uh, it's part of a story in which God has been faithful, even though human beings have failed and messed up. Yes. And we have millions of people along the way, yes, who have been participants in this story and can testify in the same way that I have. Then you can add, so there. <clears throat> right? Yeah. All right? If you want to be so local and provincial. Okay. Yeah. And when we understand, when we understand our faith in that context, hopefully, yes, it gives us confidence. Yes. Hopefully we find it reassuring. Yes, that the God who, yes, we encounter, right, is the God who's been faithful for, th for at least for 3,000 years, if not more. So it has to have this big picture. Yes. And so, where, yeah, if Jesus is the good shepherd, so what does a sheepfold look like? Yeah. Right? Where is the protection? Where is the nurture? Where is the provision? Where do we find life in, a, in its full or abundant life? And Jesus later goes on to say in a chapter that there is, our chapter that, right? There is one shepherd and there's one flock. And when Jesus says there's one flock, Yes, there's obviously no question he's talking about a community. And isn't it true that from the very, very beginning that what God has always wanted was not a bunch of individuals running around, doing their own thing, only having personal relationships or experience with God, but is not the biblical pattern from Genesis to Revelation that God, yes, who himself lives in a community with others, has always wanted to dwell in a community, that God has always wanted a people who's called by his name, right? So 
that he could be in relationship with them or in, he could dwell amongst them, starting in the garden with Abraham, with Moses, yes, with the church. And of course, in the book of Revelation, right, heaven comes down and God dwells in the midst of his new creation. Yeah. That's always been the place, right? Always been the place, right, that, or that uh, where God dwells. And unfortunately, in our society and in our Western experience, we have made it so, so individual. Of course, we all have to make an individual choice, but we have forgotten, right, the corporate nature yes, of why God wants a community. Because it actually, I think, reflects who he is. And so, we have Acts 2. And in Acts, we have the formation of a new community and a definition of what it means to be saved. And the place, again, of nurture and protection and provision. Yes, doesn't necessarily just drop out of the sky. So let me read about this community, okay? And what it is. So after a sermon, Peter says, yes, to everyone. Um, first of all, it says, when the people heard this, this is in Acts 2, 7, 37, and it's interesting that all through this chapter, people are talking about hearing and listening and uh, responding to what they hear. Just as in uh, chapter 10, Jesus says, yes, my sheep hear my voice, right? So first of all, there is an element of listening or, or a desire to want to listen, right? Do we want the good shepherd? Do we want the protection? Do we want abundant life? it first and foremost starts with listening and the ability, desire to want to hear God speak. So the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and, uh, and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Interesting, you are Jews calling Jesus Jews brothers. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? So first and foremost, the creation of this community is a community of not only listeners, but it's a community of repentance. Yes, the first words, yes, the first, actually even more important than that, I forgot it, it you know, the, the crowd says, what shall we do? Yes, and in many of our churches, we would say, now we want you to believe this, and we want you to dot your I's and cross your T's, and here our church has this doctrinal statement. You just believe this doctrine, yes, and, um, and it's almost as if, yes, you will, you know, find your entrance way into heaven. No, the first thing, being very Jewish, they don't ask what we should believe, what should we do? Repent, repent and be baptized. Okay, repentance, you know, it's the message of the prophets, it's the message of Jesus, uh, it is the message of John the Baptist, it's the message of Peter, it's the message of Paul, it's the message of Jesus to five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The New Testament doesn't know the concept of repenting once. Repentance becomes a lifestyle, right? This becomes the basis of a community. It's listening in a certain amount of humility. Repentance, repentance, repentance. The Greek is repent and keep on repenting in many places. And then it says, be baptized. And here baptism is a rite of initiation. 
And this rite of initiation, and, and I need to add here that we learn more about baptism in other parts of the New Testament, but here it's about making a commitment and joining a community, joining a new community, a different community. Yes, it's not, it is not the attitude that says, well, I'm kind of spiritual and uh, I, do, I do, do believe in the Lord and I do worship Jesus in my own way, but I'm not joining a church, you know. I'm not going to make a commitment to a group or to a community. Nope. But here, Peter says, repent and sign up. Repent and join. Yes, repent and join. You can't opt out. And then Peter goes on to say, and this is um, very interesting. He says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Yes, our, our passage in John, it talked about, yes, Jesus Yes, it talked about being saved. And clearly Jesus rescued this blind man, right? He rescued him from false religious teachers, from false idolatry, uh, from false theology, from a life of begging. Yes, Jesus rescues him from being, uh, or provides, you might say, an alternative because he's thrown out of his community. He has no place to go. Right? Jesus saves or delivers him, right, at all those at all those points. And here I think I'd like to make the point that is before we talk about salvation, that salvation first and foremost is about belonging. It's about belonging. Yes. The blind man is going to become a disciple of Jesus. He is going to be um, initiated into a new community. The, the, this early church, even though they call other Jews brothers, right? There's going to be a new community, right? So belonging. And then it goes on to say, save yourself from this crooked and twisted or corrupt generation. Save yourself. And how's that salvation going to happen? Oh, yes, it's going to be, I'm going to be against the world. I'm going to take on the culture. I'm not going to let them get me. You know, I'm, uh, I'm much stronger and smarter than all that. Yes, save yourself. But it can only be done in a community or it can only be done in a group that has a new identity, all right, and a different way of living at where um, it's reinforced amongst many people. And so it's not just belonging, but it's also, right, removing ourselves from those influences, those cultural influences, those demonic influences, the influences perhaps that speak to us from a, a broken or dysfunctional personality, uh, personality, right? We need salvation, right, from the spirit of the age. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's all bad and it's all dark and everything is depraved. I don't believe that. There's lots of good, yes, in today's world and in today's culture. Um, there's uh, many positive things happening. But at the same time, it's so very easy for us to end up being deceived and it's very easy for us to end up, right, reflecting or absorbing the values of the world and at the same time saying, oh, yes, 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 Jesus. Yeah. All right? A, uh, a selfishness, perhaps, a materialism, um, a, a refusal, uh, to, or you might say, a, a moral compromise, or what, the way we might compromise ourselves politically or economically, 
So save yourself. And in fact, we might be surprised that in the book of Acts, yes, salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sins. Right? So, in Acts 14, there's salvation from, idol- from idolatry. And then Acts 17, when Paul speaks to the church at Athens, well, not the church, the, the philosophers at Athens, right? right? There's salvation from ignorance. And in Acts 26, when encountered with the satanic, there's, there's salvation from the devil, right? All of this is part of the, the, the benefits of salvation. And we cheat ourselves if we only think, oh, it's about, it's about me dying and going to heaven. Are you saved, brother? And we say, well, I'm on my way to heaven. I must be saved. Yes? Well, that's true. But it's not quite true if we have accepted Jesus and we're addicted to pornography. Or we're under the influence of the demonic. Right? We're still more saving to be done. Which is why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, not only have we been saved, but we're in the process, hopefully, of being saved. And then the passage goes on to say that this new community, this community of repentance, this community that has said, okay, we're publicly committing ourselves, yes, to Jesus and to to his people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs, or many, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That, brothers and sisters, yes, is a place of protection because biblical teaching, right, is brings health. Right? Biblical teaching doesn't damage or corrupt or destroy or oppress people or cause, bring about abuse. Right? That man who was blind, yes, was abused in a way um, and misunderstood, but not by certain religious leaders and their very poor, poor, poor theology. So, there's a devotion to the, te- to the teaching of the apostles, right? To paying close attention to biblical truth. Not just theology, not just praise, worship music, hill songs, but yes, to the truth that uh, eventually will be found in the writings of the apostles and the way that they understood the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So the community becomes that place of protection. Yes, and it's also fellowship to the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread, some scholars interpret this as the Eucharist and communion. Others understand it just to be fellowship. Yes, but there's an intimacy. And that intimacy only occurs, or intimacy in human relations, more often occur, more often than not, occur over a meal. Yes, over a meal. And so eating together, right, which builds right relationships, which builds fellowship, which creates social bonds, right? And there you, there's that's there's and that there's an abundance or there is abundant life, right? Because what are human beings made for? Right? We're made for relationships and fellowships fellowship, not only with God, but with each other. Yes? So where do we find that? Again, in the community. Uh, And, by the way, when we talk about unity here, yes, remember Jesus talks about one shepherd and one flock, right? And the importance of unity. Unity isn't only achieved by getting everyone to sign the same doctrinal statement. That is the common approach of the church, and it's only partially right. It's good doctrine is important. Bad doctrine is destructive. But at the same time, what unifies us 
is not just doctrine or Bible verses. What unifies us is, in this case, eating together or coming to the Lord's table. Yes, because Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, right, we, he quotes and says, um, I should read it. It's very instructive, right? Praying together brings unity. Worship together brings unity, right? It's doing the thing itself, which will um, sometimes be. And here Paul says the following. He says, um, for we give thanks, for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and is... And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all take from one loaf. It's not that communion only expresses unity. It's that communion or the fellowship, especially over meals, yes, right, creates that unity, yes, and our passage continues that they're filled with great awe, um, and um, they're filled with awe and wonder. Um, <clears throat> they um, were filled with awe. So being filled with awe, yes, is there's a... Um, the word means to be filled with reverence. Right, a holy, holy reverence uh, for God. It is not uh, fear as we know it or as we understand it, but instead um, is a holiness, right, that brings a reluctance to sin and a desire for obedience. And that God's holiness is always connected to power, right? Um, in Revelation, um, in Revelation 15, there, who shall not fear your name, O Lord, and and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship you, for your judgments have been revealed. Or, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come, from Revelation 4, 8, right? So there's a connection between holiness in the community and the power of God. So there is a fear, uh, a certain awe or fear, uh, a fear of sin that, um, again, characterizes, uh, characterizes the community. It says, goes on to say, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And may I remind you that it wasn't just a home fellowship. It wasn't the small and the intimate. They also needed to see God in the beauty of his holiness. And despite all the problems, that temple, yes, that temple reflected, yes, the God's grandeur, his might, right, his power in a way that a home fellowship doesn't. So God bless home fellowships and home Bible studies, but we often need more and should uh, experience more than that. And they broke bread in homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, okay, uh, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And above it says that they shared, their, they shared things, they had things in common. And of course, we read these passages and we, sh we are very fearful because we think, oh no, I might have to share my hairbrush with somebody. Or, you know, that, that was kind of communist or socialist and we all know that it didn't work. Thank goodness, you know. I don't want to live in no kibbutz or monastery or whatever. You know. You know, it's not how it's worked out, but it's the spirit of generosity, right? Of being liberal 
and caring for each other. That's the provision, right? We say, oh, I want provision from the Lord, but God's provision for provision is often in his community, right? This is where we experience something of abundant life. And the health of any community, according to Luke or Acts, the spiritual health of any community can be gauged by, yes, the amount of giving and the generosity, yes, that um, occurs. And by the way, it's not just giving to the poor, which is important, but it's giving with the poor, right? It's giving with those who don't have needs. It's not a one, it's not giving, according to Paul in the epistles, isn't a one-way isn't something that happens from those who are wealthy to those who are poor, right? But all contribute, right, to the building up and to the good of, you know, of a community. Yes? Now, two things, and we finish. One is all of this not only reflects, right, the life as God intended, the abundant life, yes, the, what the Good Shepherd wants for us, but it's also the best way and it's the best context in which, in which all of us can come to a place of conversion and transformation, right? Because you know if you keep reading on, a few chapters later, there's all kinds of problems and difficulties in the community. They don't stop living by these principles, right? The place, where, the place where we grow and we're transformed, right, is in our relationships with others, right? And God doesn't want us to stay the same. And the excuse, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, or I'm only a human, even though I've been working on this problem for 25 years, once a week, isn't good enough isn't good enough, okay? It may be a fact, but it's not acceptable. And so the place of, again, because later in the next chapter, Peter will call for conversion, right? The place where we make that U-turn, right? The pressure and the difficulties and the need to maintain good relationships with people, right? should bring about our conversion. But not if you're going to say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with people or a community. You know, those churches are just full of hypocrites, right? And what's the line of the old song? You know, something like, you know, someone who calls the church hypocrites and bores, and the singer of the song says, well, come on in, there's room for one more, right? Yes. And finally, dear brothers and sisters, yeah, the, good the, the good shepherd who wants to protect and provide, how, what does this do you know, in an age of anxiety, in an age where there is so much fear? Yes, not fear of the Lord. By the way, if we did have a fear of the Lord or a fear of sin, we would not be afraid of what people would have to say about us on social media, right? But what does this say in a time of fear and a time of uncertainty? What should we do? Should we buy gold? Should we sell our bank shares? Should we move to Montana? Should we collect us, um, you know, weapons? Should we make sure we vote in the next presidential election and campaign for the right candidate? Well, I can tell you what we should do. It's written here in Acts chapter 2. We should live a life of listening and life of repentance, a life of desiring to uh, save ourselves or spare ourselves from the bad influence of our age, keeping in mind that we are one flock with one shepherd, that we should be devoted to the teaching of the apostles, that we should continue to break bread together, 
that we should be filled with the fear of the Lord, that we do not sin, even when, you know, the the, the times aren't normal and we think, you know, the rules don't apply in an emergency or in some kind of dangerous situation, that we should be devoted to each other and continue to live a life of, you know, of praise and worship. And uh, we don't stop. And we don't, we're not uh, the bad news or good news that happens around us, yes, will not shake us if we as a community live in this way. All right, this is good news. This is good, good, practical news, yes, for the day and age in which we live. So, Father, we pray that you would help us and help your servants. Lord, indeed, we all acknowledge that you are the good shepherd. But we pray that we will find life and life as you intended, abundant life, Lord, in the communities in which you've placed each one of us. Uh, We pray, as imperfect as those communities are, that um, your spirit will be at work to convert us and to transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.